It's recording. I'm an addict, I'm Bill. But you gotta do me a favor, get up and hug your neighbor while I pray. I said I'm an addict. My name is Bill. And um, in all, I just spent four days talking. All right. Pretty four days, almost full four days talking. My wife told me last night, I think you need to go to bed. She said, your voice is shot. And uh, I want to know if I was sick. I said, no, I'm not sick. It's just what happens after talking for four days. I mean, seriously, it's like I, I'm in awe because of the growth that I've seen since I was here last. I mean, it's been uh, an experience of a lifetime to watch the growth in Narcotics Anonymous. This meeting, I walk into it, I know the facility because I've seen it on a, a site. I've seen it in our magazine. I remember when you first got this facility. You know, and... Uh, how excited a few of these were. I will give you a hug for that, okay? All right? And this is Pedro. I used to, I, when I first met him, I called him the taco man. <laughs> All right? And now I figured it out what I'm going to do. Ramon is the real taco man. We're going to get two taco trucks. We're going to dress them up with some barrels. And we're going to be the first taco franchise in the Netherlands. <laughs> All right? They won't have to look for a job. They'll have their own business. All right? I, I get excited. I get excited when I see people's growth. I get excited when I, when I experience their growth and we sit down and we get intimate and we talk. You know, and I, I said, what else can I share that I haven't shared? I spoke last week on a Tuesday, I spent four days at a conference, and now I'm here, but what can I share that I haven't shared? First of all, the newcomer's the most important person. So could please all four of you stand up that said that your first time here at this meeting, first time? Could you please stand up? There were four of you, so I know there were, there were two women, all right? I want to welcome you. You're the most important person in this room, and I want you to know that. Without you, we can't grow. Without you, we don't have someone to carry the message to. You're the most important person, and we're here to help. We just got to know what you need, what you're here for, and how we can help you. And I want to be part of that, 
even though I live in Allentown, Pennsylvania, in the United States of America, I still want to be part of your lives. I want to watch your growth, just like I watched Pedro. I've been watching Ramon, Lindsay, and a few others in this room, Eric and, and uh, Herman, all right? And everybody else I meet along the road. Make you I know for a long time. I mean, I, well, not long enough yet. We still got a lot to live. But when I think about you, I think about the lifeblood of NA, Narcotics Anonymous. I remember my first day walking into the room to Narcotics Anonymous, not feeling like fit in. Desperation. It all starts with that desperation. We reach out for help. Whoever you found us, get together with group members here. Could the group members please raise their hand or stand up? Stand up, please. I want you to see the group members here. You're walking into your first meeting of Narcotics Anonymous. Get together with these group members after the meeting. It's that important. They need to get your phone number. You need to get their phone number. This is how it works. You need to feel part of this here. This is the important part right here. Is it? And could please each one of you group members go hug these newcomers right away before they sit down? Please. All right? That's how important this is to me. You need to know that we're here and that we care, and we care more than anything about you. I want to welcome you home. I want to give I want everyone to give them a big applause for taking that first step. Miracles happen and you're one. I want you to understand that you're a miracle. The minute you walk through that door, you become part of a miracle. And it's going to be a continuous ride of hope, promise, of unity, and sense of purpose. And I want you to understand we have a 100% recovery rate if you follow what others have done before you. We have never seen anyone fail that followed our path. And that's in our book. I woke up this morning, Eric was uh, starting to make the breakfast, I, I sliced the potatoes the way I like them, fried potatoes, American style, all right? And then I said, you gotta turn them, I'm gonna take my shower. And I went and I prayed. I started my day off in prayer. And I went and prayed and I came out and I talked to him about what I felt God was directing me into. And I said, I'm going to reveal it tonight because it's the core of Narcotics Anonymous. 
versus the newcomer is the most important person in the blood. It's our line of blood that we need to stay clean. That a life stream of Narcotics Anonymous. And I'm thinking about this here. What don't we have that's not on this table? I'm really serious. We got a lot of stuff here. Uh, seriously, it's a lot of stuff. But what we don't have is an updated sponsorship booklet. And I'm thinking about this sponsorship booklet that I, I'm, I've already outlined in my mind. It's already been in print. And I'm thinking, what is it about? First of all, every group should sponsor the newcomer when they walk through the door. I'm just staring over at, the, at dinner. Sponsorship should be not forced upon a newcomer. They should not be told that they need to find a sponsor tonight. They don't even know what it is, but the group's responsibility is to sponsor them, and that's how the booklet's going to start off. It's about a group's responsibility, our membership that make up the group's responsibility in helping the newcomer. Today, feel comfortable to ask another member about sponsorship. And I'm thinking about this. We don't have that. We're not here to chase newcomers away because they think they have to do certain things. We share our experience, our strength, and our hopes of NA recovery is what we do here. This is about experience, strength, and hope. My experience, strength, and hope, I've been talking about it for four days, sitting around on couches at night. I like the couch, okay, that they have over here. Every, every facility I go to here, they got a couch for me. And I love the couch. Anyone that sat in the couch, we talk about recovery. Except the last night it got strange. All right? But it's all right. We got some recovery in. All right? I mean, it's just like, but, uh, we had a great time. We had the most wonderful weekend that I've had over here. Seriously, they all been different that I come here. I've been here five years. I, I made the last year on Zoom. I was there waiting for you to reopen it. You went on too long of breaks, and I'm sitting there alone. So I read my gray book. I studied my book, and I relived the experiences of when we wrote the book. See, I have one, a gift that I helped write the basic text in Narcotics Anonymous, not because I knew what I was doing. I couldn't read, write, I couldn't talk when I got here. I stuttered, so I wouldn't talk. You know, I've been embarrassed my whole life when I was a child because I couldn't talk. They forced me seven years into speech class. Also learned German for seven years and forgot everything I know. You know, but uh, you know, the experiences of a childhood affect each one of us. We don't end up here by mistake. If you walk through that door, you're not a mistake. You're also, when I think about it, when I go back to my childhood and the things that people affected me along the road, they molded me. I didn't know myself when I came here. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know where I fit in. I didn't know my sexuality. I'm proud of what I am today. I've been given a gift. I'm able to talk. I'm able to get in front of people I don't know. I'm able to talk about an orange for 15 minutes in speech class and get a double A. And the speech class teacher tells me, I need to leave. Why do I need to leave? I'm here to learn. He said, because you're a ringer. That would never have been possible. Well, that's when I went to college later in life. Never went to high school. I sit there and tell my English class I'd never been there. And he said, okay, Bill, you're a special guy. You've never been to high school. 
Great. You don't have these experiences? Because I kept saying about these experiences in high school. What experiences? I lived in the street, my man. I was just trying to survive as a kid. I was just trying to get through life, and I was trying to run from pain of my childhood. So I lived in the street, so I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, well, how'd you get a high school? I did in the United States Army. I took a test. did an all-day test, and I got a diploma. But I don't have experiences in that area. If we don't have experience, how are we going to share about it? We share our experience, strength, and hopes of NA recovery. It means we gained experience by coming here and people teaching us and we're open-minded. We learn to be open-minded. We first here. We get doubted. If you doubt it, great. You're in the right place if you doubt this place. If you're looking to fit in, you're trying to find a solution, you're in the right place. If you're scared when you first walk through the door, it's all right, you're in the right place. You're here, you're with the right people at the right time, at the right moment. Let us love you back to life, like they did me. When I walked in this program, I was 26 years old. I had hair down to my waist. I weighed 119 pounds, soaking wet. See, I didn't share that with you yet, okay? See, I gotta think about what I didn't talk about. I've been talking for four days. What did I talk about is how I looked when I came here. I talked to you about the desperation of the night before, but what I looked when I walked in here was 119 pounds soaking wet. When I hopped on the scale, I weighed on over 180 some pounds though when I was dressed because of the armor I had to put on my body and my addiction. Before I hopped on my Harley Davidson, I had to put my leathers on, I had to put my weapons in, I had to put my ammunition on, I, had to, I carried two bayonets, I carried two sawed-off 12-gauge pistols. And I, when I got on the scale, I weighed good. But when I took everything off, I was 119 pounds because of my addiction. I, think I called myself death warmed over. I was the living dead. People didn't know me and they didn't need to know me because I, I projected fear. I was a scared human being, but I projected it to keep you away from me. Narcotics Anonymous didn't allow that to happen to me. They didn't allow me to stay in fear. They cared for me till I could care for myself. I remember sitting in the rooms and people asking, why don't you talk? I tell them because I don't talk unless I know something. I don't know any too much. So I don't talk much. I was afraid to talk. I was afraid you're going to laugh at me like when I was a little kid. I was afraid of being laughed at. You hear these things when you grow up, sticks and stones will break my bones and names will never hurt me. Names hurt the worst. I could take a physical beating. I could be kicked around like a football and get back up and fight. Didn't hurt me. So laugh at my father when he punched me in the face and laugh at him. The man don't show pain. But I couldn't show the scars of the name calling and that he called me. I should be a girl. I couldn't stand that pain. I couldn't stand that being hidden in the basement for three months at eclipsed by him. I couldn't stand the weapons being discharged at my house of my mother and sister. I have five sisters. I'm raised with girls. And I should be one of them. I couldn't stand that pain. I was broken before I even become an addict. 
I become an addict at five years old because my father forced me to be his drinking buddy in the middle of the night when he had no one to drink with. I had to drink. So I learned at a very young age to stay addicted, to cover the pain up. I found out drugs covered up pain. And one day it didn't work no more, and that's what brought me here. It didn't work no more. I couldn't get off no more. I couldn't stay high. I couldn't kill the pain. I lived in the pain. It brought me here. I think about that. And then I got the wrong sponsor. You know why I got the wrong sponsor? Because it said you need the sponsor before you leave the room. I picked the wrong sponsor. When I got a year clean, the guy relapsed. You know what that's like when you lose your sponsor? And there's a few in this room that know what it's like when your sponsor tells you I can't sponsor you no more. Well, mine went out and he's telling me he's calling me from a cornfield. I said, I know you're, John, I know you're not in a cornfield. You're on something. I called his wife up and said, Brenda, where's John? She said, I don't know he's using. I was devastated. I was lost. I was lost when my sponsor relapsed and went out and used. Where was I at now? Does this program work? I don't believe it works now. It's proven it doesn't work. See, when I got here, there was no one more than 90 days except John. So John became my sponsor because I had to get one. I was told to get a sponsor. I was told to get a home group. There was only one group, so I joined that home group. I've been there ever since, though. But it was almost like you're forced into stuff. We should never force another addict into something. We should sponsor them until they can find one. We should let them figure out where they fit in, and then they'll understand what a home group is. And that's what I was thinking about when I walked through this door tonight. When I saw this facility, and knowing I'd been here, but I'd been here through. See, what I do, and I learned it when I was young as a child, I hid myself in books. I hid myself in reading about history, and I could relive it. So when I saw this facility, I've been already here. But what I saw when I walked in, I felt the spiritual feeling in this room. I felt the presence of God. I used to have a friend, you remember Mac McFadden? Mac said, take off your feet, I mean your shoes, folks. You're walking on holy ground. And every time we walk in Narcotics Anonymous, take off your shoes and dust off your feet, he'd say. You're walking on holy ground. And I feel it here tonight. I feel the presence of this God that we have no name for. And why I say that, because you've got to give it a name as you grow. If you don't believe in God, it's all right. I didn't believe in God when I got here. I didn't believe God worked. Why would God allow a child to go through the pain I lived in? Why would God allow me to become the man I had become that I couldn't stand living with at the end? Why? How could there be a God that would allow a little boy to be beat up his whole life and never have a father? Even though he lived with me, but never having him. You don't have to live the life of pain I lived in. If you're rebelling against your parents, you don't feel you're loved. And here you've got to learn to be loved. You've got to learn to receive love. You've got to learn to love one another better. And it says that in our book, loving one another better. And then Jimmy used to say that all the time to me, Jimmy Kennan, our founding member, who was my grand sponsor. I always say my first real NA sponsor was Joseph Proctor. John was not my first real NA sponsor. 
He was a sponsor, basically, that's forced on me. He was a sponsor in, and why I say my first real NA sponsor, because NA was really not NA, it just had a name on it. We were riding on the NA name. We were at uh, another fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. All the work on our table was all the AA stuff back then when I walked through the door. We didn't have any book. We had five IPs in a little white book called Narcotics Anonymous. That little white book was our basic text. I took that little white book, we called it Hip Pocket Recovery. Any old, older member that was around will know what Hip Pocket Recovery is. You put it in your back pocket, you take it wherever you went, and you and you'd read it. I used to take it in the Bethlehem Steel where I worked. I was a steel worker. And I'd take it in there, and I'd sit down away from everyone, and I'd read that thing, and I, and I used to have little notepads, and I'd write notes all day. I learned how to read, write, and right here. They read and write here. I learned how to pray here. How do we say our prayers? I, I don't know how you said it tonight because you said it in another language I don't understand, but I knew you were praying. All right? I, can, I think you said the serenity prayer, but I don't know. All right? I can assume that you said it because most meetings open up that way. If you had your own other prayer, I don't know. But I know you were praying, so I could pray with you in silence. And that's all right. I could feel the prayer. I could feel the presence of a spirit in this room. And that's something that I didn't have when I walked through the door. I didn't feel the spirit. I was a dead man walking. When you think about that, I'm not going to go through my last night because I've done that enough in the last week. All right? And when I leave here, I'm a, and anyone wants to come up tomorrow up to the east, Mickey's going to be sharing his 30s. Seven years with us. He's going to share his experience, strength, and hope on NA recovery. That he's experienced. Some we've experienced together. All right? But he's going to share his experience with us. How he got here. What he's gone through. How he works the program. We all might have a little different turn on the program, but it's the same program. It's 12 steps, 12 traditions that hang on the wall. I know Mickey likes to say that, so I'm going to say it before he gets a chance tomorrow. <laughs> All right? But when you walk in, you need to get them on the wall here, though, okay? Yeah. All right? Good idea. The, the 12th trip, and, and they're, they're, without what it says in the book, they're the short version. It's what we had when I came here. That's all we had was the short We didn't have no long version. first long version was in the gray book that we wrote. But as they're hanging on the wall when you read them, they're very short but they're to the point. I can understand short to the point. I can understand honesty when I see it. And that's what kept me here. I could see that people were honest about this thing. I could see people were committed. I didn't have either one of them. I was not honest. I, was not, I didn't know how to be honest with myself. How was I going to be honest with you? They say, and then they, you get to reading the, the old literature and it say, you have to be, doesn't say honest, does it? What does it say, Mick? An honest desire. An honest desire to stay clean. That word honest is important. An honest desire, I didn't have it, but I, had, I got it in a hurry. You gotta, you gotta be, want this more than anything else in the world. And if you want it, you can make it here. It's up to you. See, I changed what I was gonna share this morning. I always plan, I'm, I'm thinking about planning something and it goes derailed. I walk in the room and it's derailed. 
I'm like, what am I going to share differently? I don't know. But once I pray and we're in that prayer and I get you up to pray for me, you're praying and you're praying. I mean, I'm praying. You are hugging, right? I can feel that embracement. And then God gives me the message. I don't know what I'm going to say before I get up here, except I got clean November. To, I, I, my clean date is November the 16th of 1979. My actual clean night was after I, my last night using was November the 8th of 1979, but I made the decision on November the 16th I needed help. And that's why I celebrated then. I don't include from November the 8th to the 16th. I was clean, but I didn't want recovery. I didn't want to be clean. I didn't make that decision yet. Once I made that decision, I started my clean clock. That's why I made the decision on November the 16th that this is my way of life. And I'm going to be fully give this a chance. No other way worked. It tells us in the book. If you read the gray book, it's going to tell you nothing else worked. Prisons, jails, psychiatry, institutions, they didn't work for us. And they didn't work for me. I was at the end of the road, as Jimmy Kennan talks about. I was at that end of that road. This was the last stop on the road before I checked out. I was checking out November the 8th, as I talked on last week, I was, and I talk about that. I, November the 8th, I was checking out. November the 16th, I was checking in. I've checked in and stayed checked in ever since. This is the most beautiful experience of my life, Narcotics Anonymous. It's what fulfills me. My wife understands it. My wife, I talk with her every day since I came over. She understands that where I'm at, she trusts me with what I'm doing. She knows that God has sent me on a mission to spread Jimmy Kennan's message around the world, that no addict need die without hearing the message of hope and promise of freedom, and that we are responsible for, nobody else. We are responsible. We're responsible for people's recovery. We're responsible to get this message around that no addict need die without hearing the message of hope and believing, believing that they also can do this thing. And if you make the commitment tonight to do that, I applaud you. I honor you, and I want you part of my life. I want to experience your recovery. And that's exciting, but what we do here is more than that. All the hugs here, okay, they're important. They're important that you feel the spirit of another human being and you know that you can trust that human being. We're here to be each other's eyes and ears, it says in the program. What is that about? If you see me going down the road the wrong direction, I would hope you would stand in the road and let me know I'm going the wrong way. And if, if, if that doesn't work, I hope you find another person to step in front of me and let me know I'm going the wrong way. If that don't work, put the group in front of me. If I don't listen after that, let me go. All right? I'm being honest with you. Let me go at that moment. You tried your best. I'm three strikes. I'm out. I made the decision to go the wrong way. You made me aware once, twice, and third time. And if I make that decision, then let me go. Don't hold me back. Because if you try to hold me back, I'm going to resist. And if you keep trying to hold me back, I'm going to reject you all. And I won't have a way back. 
We can't force people to stay here with us. I think about stuff like that because of my travels. I said this weekend about, uh, you know, when I had a year clean, there's a couple of events that happened. I talked about the one event where I was in the, they, they sent me to another place because uh, at the halfway, I was living in three quarter way home, but the halfway home was running it. And they told me that I had to go get help. And it started with eating sugar. It was comical. They used to put a bowl of sugar. They shared this. They used to put this big bowl of this purple rock sugar candy out. Because they said they were dealing with alcohol. They weren't dealing with addicts. And I was their first addict in there. And, and, and the sugar would disappear by, I get up to go to work at, at uh, about 4.30 because I was working day shift. Because I got a, they, they, they gave me that I could go back on day shift for the first year. I, I would come back to work after a year clean. And I used to go down there. Before I went to work, the sugar candy was gone. They'd have to refill the bowl. And when I come home, they have a new fresh bowl, I eat the bowl again. And after a while of doing this here, uh, the counselor called me in and she says, are you eating all that candy? I said, I thought it was to eat. She said, I think you need a little bit more help because I think you're an emotional basketball case at this moment. You're up and down constantly. You know what happens when you do sugar like that? You extreme highs, and then you, when you don't have it, you extreme lows. Just like addiction. So they sent me to this place they call Confront in Allentown. And they put me in this group, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to stories of, of men, and they're, and they're not one of them that are straight. And one of them's crying about and I had no problem with that, but one of them was crying about his boyfriend beating him up and then raping him. And me, as a natural violent human being, got up and I looked at that. I told him, are you going to allow that to continue? Get up and walk across the room and punch him in the face. Now. And then the counselor said, you're homophobic. And I looked at him and said, I'll show you I'm homophobic. <laughs> and I grabbed him by his throat. I put him out the second floor window and I punched him in the face ten times. I said, now I want to know who's afraid of a homo. <laughs> and then he looked at me like, he, he said, uh, you need to sit down. We're calling the cops up. And then they called my counselor up to let her know they're, they're calling the cops up me. And somehow she convinced him to send me to a psychiatrist. And then I get there, and I sit down, and this Dr. Shemai, I remember the doctor, Dr. Shemai. And I remember Dr. Shemai because I remember when my, my, doc, my, my sister, oh, you stand up in a mental institution all the time. And I remember that doctor, uh, and that doctor would call, Dr. Shemai would call him up and get medication for Dr. Shemai. And I'm thinking, now I'm in front of this guy that's being treated by this other doctor that believed in heavy medication. So what do you think he's going to do to me? You've got to do medication for the rest of your life. You've done so much brain damage with all them drugs. Now, right? And I was like, so then I go back to the halfway home. And then they throw me out of the halfway home because I violate their contract. First, they try to use that I'm not going to meetings. I said, wait a minute, I'm going to about 10 meetings a week. And they said, where are you going? I go Narcotics Anonymous. Well, because, see, all the guys in that house went to AA. They didn't see me, so they told me that I don't go to meetings. I went to Narcotics Anonymous, 10 meetings a week. 
I believed in this fellowship. I was committed. And if they had more, I would want to more meetings. And I had to travel. The nights I traveled 200 miles to get to a meeting, 200 miles to get home. I was committed to this fellowship. And then they finally said, well, you're not following the doctor's orders. You violated the rules of order, and I moved into a garage. And I was scared, and I went to a meeting, and I started talking about this here. And I was scared that I was going to have to do meds the rest of my life. I didn't fill the script. The halfway home filled it, but I never took the meds. I left there without them. And they weren't going to put meds in my body. And I cried that day in the meeting, the Saturday morning set meeting. I still remember that to this day. And I'm crying, and I'm like a baby. And this newcomer says, they're right. I'm thinking, what the hell's wrong with this idiot? They're right. And he said, the second step says, and he went over the second step, by being restored to sanity. It means we get to admit we're insane to be restored, doesn't it? So he was right, and it gave me hope. The, new, uh, the mouth of a brand new person, that's how important the newcomer is, they told me I could have hope. They're the ones that gave me the hope. Not the older members, but the newest member told me that. That's when I realized how important that newcomer was. They saved my life. I never took meds. I've been clean ever since. My mind has never been altered ever again. You think about that. I live a life of cleanliness. We go through a lot in this program. We gotta learn to get back in life. We gotta learn how to survive in life. We gotta be able to grow. And then they told me about the 12 steps and I start find a sponsor named Joseph Proctor. Joseph was, writing, was involved in writing the basic text. Joseph was the type of guy, and I'll share this one more time, people heard it last week. Joseph, when I met him, he was on roller skates, all right? He was on roller skates and he rolled up to me and he has a gray book hand and he has the four, old four-step inventory guide which he should have on the table. If not, it's in the step guide guide. So it's still there. And he rolls up to me and then he takes me, get up, Pat. You're the closest one. I use, I like to do this. Or, and he starts rubbing me down. He starts rubbing me down like this. And, Five minutes of this shit, man. So what happened? <laughs> this guy better move. And then he insults me and tells me to work the steps or die, motherfucker. <laughs> How dare this person insult me? He thinks he's going to bed with me? He's a dead man. That's, that's how fast it goes. He's insulting me. He thinks he's going to bed with me. He's rubbing me down like no woman ever did. And I'm thinking, and I go back through my childhood. It's not the rape to the women, it's when I got raped at 13 years old by a man. It's when I was 12 years old, and I used to go, the, 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 the guy that used to be our equipment manager at Little League Baseball would get the boys to come home, and he'd pick each one of us out that knew that we had bad childhoods. And then we'd be there, and he'd have us playing cards. And, and it was all naked, naked sex stuff on the cards. And he'd wait for the littlest boy to get the biggest hard on and he start rubbing their legs. And if you if let him go, he'd go all the way up. And you'd be the victim that night. You're the one he was giving a blowjob to. And you feel like Bill. But I remember that well. I remember each kid that went there. The guy finally got busted 20 years later for molesting over 
200 boys that came forward. I'm not one that went forward. I was already in Narcotics Anonymous clean. When I heard that, I was happy that this guy was no longer getting away with what he was doing with little boys. But you know, I relive that pain. I relive it when I walk through these doors. And when Joseph did that to me, I'm reliving this pain. Why me? You know why? Because that's what they do. It had nothing to do with me, it's not personal. I was the victim, I was a victim of victims. I was a victim of my family. They were victims of their families and the cycle was there. That's all, I became who I was because I was running. I became the man and the, they called me in the club I ran with the death of angel, the, the, the angel of death. When you heard my bike coming, you knew there was someone's gonna pay. So what happens when you come here? You gotta leave all them guards down. You gotta let go, you gotta let people in. You gotta let people heal you. Joseph was the man that sponsored me a week later when a newcomer again, a brand new person, when I'm sharing this stuff in the room, he said, that sounds like the man that should sponsor you. I called Joseph up and asked him to sponsor me. It's the greatest ride of my life. Joseph had the ability to talk to me. He had the, the ability, a thousand miles away on the phone, to cut me open, pull all my stuff out, make me look at it, put it back in, stitch me back up, and then welcome me back to life. Joseph Proctor had that ability. He had the ability to love me and care for me like no other man ever did. He became more of a brother, a big brother to me. He became someone who would care for me. He came from someone that could guide me through the 12 steps. And Joseph, if I complained, I got another commitment. I still remember that. I call him up and tell him, but, 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 and he's like, anything past but's bullshit, Bill, I don't want to hear it. What part did you play in it? Always, what part I play? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. No, it ain't about you. What's about you is what part did you play in it. Let's talk. I can only help you. I can't help these other people. They're not calling me. So don't. He would not hear me complain about anybody else in this room. He wouldn't let me complain about anyone else I met along the road. He wouldn't know what part. He wouldn't let me complain about my new wife. He wouldn't let me complain about my job. What part did I play that I'm in trouble at work? I'm like, how come it's always about me? I can only help you. I can only help you grow. He didn't tolerate that stuff. And I don't tolerate it from my sponsees. I want to know what part they play in it. What's their responsibility? How can I help them grow? See, I'm back to sponsorship. I knew I got back there somehow. But Joseph got me back there. Joseph helped me the most of any addict, any sponsor I've ever had. And then I got my next sponsor, Greg. Greg continued that ride. You all right, brother? Yeah. You need a little help? No. Need someone to squeeze you? No, no. All right. Because I'm available if you need to be squeezed, brother. All right? But you think about that. There's someone in this room that's going to care enough for you to help you also. Joseph did that for me, and he guided me through the steps. He guided me up to the sixth step. I say up to the sixth step because I didn't do my sixth step with him. I did it with Greg. He actually prepared me when it was time to change sponsors. I tried to hold on to him for an extra year. I didn't want to believe and what he told me I was going to grow. I didn't want to believe I outgrew Joseph. 
he prepared me for Greg. And I sat down with Greg and I did my sixth step in the jacuzzi in George Washington Motor Lodge. Remember that nice jacuzzi we used to have? We're sitting in there at two o'clock in the morning and then all of a sudden the jacuzzi fills up with a bunch of guys and girls and then we're looking at them and now I'm scared because you know I'm looking around. Four of them were dying of the AIDS virus. And I'm thinking, oh my God. You know, then I did something stupid for two years. You know that, that there, antibacterial soap? I washed my whole body with this stuff. I, was, I, I had that same feeling of filth, but I had, this, I had to get this virus off me. And I did it for two years. And then I started breaking out in little pimples all over my body. I didn't think about what I was doing was killing the good bacterial. You kill the bad, but you're killing the good. So I had no protection on my skin anymore. And I, I know I have the AIDS virus now, I know it. Because then we're part of the symptoms. You get sores that don't heal up. And when they, I didn't get scabs, I got this skin, this hard skin grow over these here spots. And now I'm pulling the skin off and there's raw meat there. And I'm telling my wife, I know I got the AIDS virus. And I'm scared. And then I got to call up Greg and tell him, hey, Greg. And Greg said, what have you done different? When did this start? I said, and then I told him what I was doing. He said, stop using that soap. And I stopped doing the soap. And guess what? I started healing up. The, all, the, all the sores disappeared after a while. I started building good bacteria on my body again. You know, and I didn't get caught up in fear no more in that area. We've just all been through something that fear has been used against us. Anyone that's been out there, anyone that's been in the rooms knows what I'm talking about. You know what's happening. You know what's going, through, going on right now. You know, in a couple days they're going to shut tell you you can't win restaurants if you're not vaccinated. Right? You know all that stuff. Well, we've all been living it. Oh, we shouldn't share it. No, we need to share about our fears here about stuff like that. We need, uh, the unknown. What are we walking into? We need to talk about that openly or it's going to devour us. And once we're in our own minds and isolated, we're in trouble. We need to get together with our sponsors and talk to our sponsors about what we're going through, how we're going through it what we're struggling with. We got stuck on Zoom. I hate Zoom. I mean, in a sense, there was no reason to be going to meetings. I couldn't handle that. You know what I was missing at every meeting? You. I was missing that hug. I was missing that verbal communication one-on-one, seeing your eyes glow. I was missing the newcomers in the room because we weren't getting newcomers. And a year ago, July, well, after the that fellowship service conference that we, we improvised and ended up in Atlantic City and we were sitting there in that conference, in that big church room. And we tried our best to do what, be legal, space ourselves out and stuff. We always ended up hugging anyway. <laughs> we missed it. We needed to hug. We couldn't help ourselves. And then we, Mickey went home because he, he didn't know if he had the COVID or not, and he didn't want to take a chance. He went home, and, and his wife come back. And, and then we ended up sitting on the beach in Ventnor, having a meeting, sitting on, a, on a, one of the lifeboats, all right? And we felt at home. There's only 20 of us, or a little 22 of us, but we felt at home. 
we felt togetherness again. And right after that, I went home and I called the church up and said, we can't, we have to meet. I don't care if you let us, can we meet in your parking lot? They let us meet in their parking lot. We stayed there until it got too cold, and then I talked them into letting us in the building. And then they called us back just before Christmas and said, we got to shut it down again. Well, I called a friend up and said, what's that facility you said we can meet in? It was over in Bethel. I said, call them up and see if we can meet there. We didn't miss a meeting. We reopened that Friday in another facility. And we met there. A smaller room, but still had 20, 25 people in a small room, and we didn't space. We hugged. People wanted a mask, we provide them. People need hand sanitizer. We put the hand sanitizer. We bought the mask. It was there. If you, if you come to the meeting, you want to wear a mask, it's up to you. You don't want to be hugged, it's up to you. If, you're, if the fear is bothering you, but we're happy you're here. We had to work through that. Something we all got to work through. But how we get through it is what matters. How we got through was through love and care and compassion. I realized if I'm missing this hug, I'm missing intimacy, seeing people, I'm not seeing the spirit, and I'm going around the world speaking all the time. I was, all of a sudden I was back on the speaker circuit. I'm in New Zealand, I'm in Portugal, I'm in Brazil, I'm in England, I'm in the Netherlands, I'm all over the world, I'm in the Middle East. Never spoke in the Middle East, but all of a sudden I'm there. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm, I'm doing history days from the guy in California. Got over a thousand people on the, on the Zoom. But you know something you're missing? I'm still missing that human touch. I needed that human touch. I could not survive this way any longer. It would have killed me if we kept meeting that way. We have to meet and we got to figure a way to meet no matter what the state does to us. We still got to find a way to meet physically. I don't care if it's in a, a 10 by 10 box. We got to meet. I don't care, I, and I learned that from the catacombs of Rome in the Roman Empire. Them people met regardless of what the Roman Empire did. We have to meet. We got to get newcomers in our contact or we're losing our lifeline. If we don't have newcomers, we're going to die, folks. We're going to shrivel up and die. Sooner or later, we're going to get trapped in our own minds. Once you're in behind it, when you're in your mind, you're behind enemy lines. Joseph taught me, when you think calls, I called a lot. You think about that. I'm not going to throw my phone tonight. I did that. I did that already. It does not break. Literally, anyone in this room that was there at the conference knows this phone does not break. I'm not going to do it here tonight, okay? But this is my lifeline. It may not look like your phone. You may not look like me, okay? You may not look like me. I may not look like you. But we're all, we look for our similarities here. My phone does the same thing yours does, it calls out. It's a phone. I just can't do all that other stuff. I do have an iPhone 10. It sits on my, um, my wife always gives me, when she gets upgrades, she gives me her iPhone. They sit there, I got the, the six, the seven, the eight, and the 10 sitting there. And I, I set alarm clocks with them. They're beautiful alarm clocks, they work. I told her, the iPhone 10's there, I'm not here to help you. Put the alarm on. As a matter of fact, it's set there, just take, just make it ring every day except Saturdays and Sundays. Put it from Monday to Friday. So she texts me every day saying I'm up. 
because she doesn't want me getting up and calling her when I'm up anyway. I think, what are you talking about? You want to get up at 5 in the morning, it's 11 o'clock here. You want to get up at 5.30, it's 11.30. What are you concerned that if I'm calling, you're letting me know, she's letting me know she's up and ready for work. Because she works at a school teacher. She lets me know she's up and she lets me know when she left. She lets me know when she gets here so I know she's safe. See, there's a commitment and a relationship. I learned about them relationships in these rooms. I learned it through Greg. See, God put my next sponsor in line. Joseph led me there. My next sponsor taught me about five relationships. And he actually taught me a sixth even we didn't write about it. He taught me about a relationship. And Joseph taught me the first three. And that's with yourself, God, and your sponsor. You learn to have a relationship first. And then a home group. Where's the home group? It's after the first three. Why would we force you into a home group when you haven't developed them relationships? You don't know what you want at this moment. Just hang around the home group. Hang around the meeting, the NA meetings. You'll figure it out. Sometime you're going to walk up and you're going to look at that person and you're going to know that's your sponsor. You'll know it. God will tell you and put you in the right direction. The group's going to help you get to that point. They're going to talk about the book. They're going to talk about writing steps. And you're going to start thinking, wait a minute, maybe I should write steps. Maybe my life would improve. But we should never force another human being. You've got to get to the choice. You're going to read the five essential tools I think. It's going to talk about real simple things. Prayer, reading, writing, meetings, okay? It's going to talk about these things in there. It's going to let you know how some of us work our lives. You're going to get to know how it works. You'll figure it out. And we need to be here and open to help. We need to care enough about you that we allow you to get to that point and allow you to reach out for help. We help those that's in the book that want help. You know what's wrong with us? We get here, we want to help everybody. They don't all want it, folks. Let them ask. We, they will, we'll give it to them once they're ready. Don't drive them out to rooms. I drove many of people out in the early days. There was no guide here for us. I thought physical violence worked. I beat up three sponsees that year. I talked about that year. I beat three of them up that week twice. I got in trouble at the halfway home, okay? I beat that counselor up. And then I, I'm, I'm walking up the street, on a, I used to get off on adrenaline. Anyone ever live in, listen to heavy metal? Any heavy metal freaks in here? Because I'm one. You know, and it started with Black Sabbath. It started with Iron Man. It started with War Pigs. Generals gathered in the field like witches at black masses. The war machine keeps turning. That was me. And then Metallica. My son introduced me to Metallica. And uh, man, that music was loud and it was proud and it was energized and rock on, baby. That's where my head went. I love death metal. What I don't like about it, they bang their heads too much. They're always shaking their heads. I don't like that part, but I love the bass. I love the, the vibrations. I still love them. If I'm getting prepared for something, I put it on and rock on. You know, one time I thought I was going to meet Jimi Hendrix in, 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 in Guitar Land, in heaven. Because he said, it will meet you in the next world, in any old deed. I mean, think about stuff. How insane was I to meet a guy that old deed? Where was my head at? I used to say words, I never listened to the words, I only listened to the, the music. 
but you know I live the words. So if you're here long enough and you keep reading the words, you're going to start to live them. See, I know that about that because I listened to rock and roll long enough that I became the words. Said so I don't know what the words are, but why am I living them? Why am I living in agony as, as Iron Man in Black Sabbath? He's, he's, he's coming back and reaping havoc on, on those he wants, that he once saved. It means you're isolated. He's talking about isolation, extreme isolation. He's talking about revenge on people. Why was I living that in my, in my addiction? I could end up there clean if I allow it. But I think about stuff like that. And I think about right now what Greg said, I want to be a living prayer. That's the most thing in my life I want to be a reflection of prayer life. I want to be as, as spiritual as possible human being as I can. I want to be open. I finally understood something when I was a little kid and someone said, God is knocking, you got to let him in. I never understood that. How stupid is that? I never had him knock on that door. Have you? Did God ever walk and knock on that door? You hear the knock? No, what he was talking about, God is knocking, open your mind, leave God in. Open your spirit, allow God in. That's what he was talking about. It took me how many years to understand that riddle? Because I'm looking at a door, just like when they said certain prayers, I'm looking at my father, and I didn't want no part of that. Why would I say that prayer when that's my father? I struggled with things like that my whole life. I rejected God because of those things. I didn't know God till I walked in these rooms. I didn't learn about God till I worked through these rooms. I don't call it my higher power. You will never hear me use that word. I say there's a greater power than all of us. In that greater power is defined in spirituality. And if you do that spirituality long enough, you'll come to a point and understand who that God is for you. Some, I have people ask me, who's your God? I look at them. You really don't need to know. You'll find yours. You'll find the presence of that spirit in this room. You'll find it in that hug. You'll find it in that sponsor. You'll find it on your journey. Each one of you is on your own journey. But it's a together journey. We're here to help it. We're here to walk through it. I'm working on that book. Like I said, it's going to be a sponsorship booklet. And I'm going to talk about a lot of these type of issues. I'm going to talk about my recovery and how important it is to find recovery before you're intimate with another human being. I'm going to talk about these issues in that booklet and how to get to being sponsored. What's the commitment of being sponsor? Uh, sponsor? What's the commitment of sponsorship? Being a sponsee. There's a relationship you're establishing. That's what sponsorship is in sponsee. It's a relationship. It's another relationship, as Greg talked about. You, you did the first, you're learning about yourself, now you, you, you come to that spirituality through the first three steps, and, and now you got the sponsor, you're getting intimate, you're learning about yourself, they're helping you guide their, you through there, and they are doing it not because they want something out of you. They're doing it because it's part of what we do in the lifeline here. We help another human being. Someone asked, see, someone asked me to sponsor them. And I'm going to look at them, what do we expect from sponsorship? I'm going to ask them, what do they expect from this fellowship? What surrender mean to you? How do you apply it in your life? 
and then we're going to sit down, and I'm going to tell you what I expect. And if you don't want that, I just ain't the sponsor for you. No problem. But you're going to know my expectation. We're in a basic, it's not a written contract, but it's a contractual relationship. Like I talked about, if you see me go walking down the road, if I see you walking down the road, I'm going to let you go. In the, if you're going the wrong way, I'm going to let you know. And I'm going to remind you of that contract that we sat down and agreed upon. I'm just the, the deliverance of the message to you. If you chose not to do that, I'm going to let you know maybe I'm the wrong sponsor. Find someone that you're willing to work with because maybe it's not me and I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem. I'm not rejected by that. I'm not available. I'm not the guy for everyone. There's someone out there that is for you. There's someone that you're willing to work with. Someone you're willing to get intimate in, in, and trust. This is about trust. Your sponsor, if you do not trust your sponsor, you have a problem with yourself or you got a problem that you don't know how to break through and be honest with that human being, find someone you can. Learn that, and I'm gonna write about that in this booklet. And the reason I'm writing about it because it's not on our table. And then I'm gonna turn it over to the fellowship and they're gonna input and review it and it's gonna turn out whatever it's supposed to be. If I don't like what they did, I'll keep it as my own and they can have what they did with it then. And, uh, and then when they want to uh, copyright it, as an agent of the anonymous, I'll copyright it. Because it's theirs. When I'm done with writing something, I turn it over. It's no longer mine. It's now yours. And no one ever needs to know what I wrote. There are people that know what Greg wrote. There's people that know what Jimmy wrote. They don't need to know there's some things on the table that I wrote. It doesn't matter because it became yours. Once you start the input and review process, it's yours. It's no longer the writer. I've turned it over. I'm done with it. I've gone as far as I can go with it. And now it's your time to be, get involved in the participation, the involvement. You know what's neat today? I went on Radio Free. You know what was neat? There was an, an article from somebody, a poem, that's going in the magazine. All right, someone in this room wrote a poem. I showed it to someone else and he was excited. Things change. Someone else who was at the weekend, they wrote, a, they wrote an article for the magazine. I got three articles today. They're going in the magazine. We have the ability to write. Joseph taught me that, getting me involved in literature. When I said I couldn't read, I couldn't write. All right, Joseph taught me how to read and write. He sat me down at the table. That the old outdated sponsorship, I blamed myself on that. Because he put me at a table and says, you got the most clean time. And they approved that thing. And I read it and I read it and said, wait a minute. First it tells you men are men with men are with the men and women with the women. And I go, well, what about the the homosexual or the the, the transsexual or the freaking or, or the lesbian? You're telling her she gotta have a girl for a sponsor? What are we saying? Really? And I left that in there. I'm going to tell you something about it. Find a sponsor that works for you. I don't care if it's man. I don't care if it's a woman. I don't care if it's a knit. If, if damn elephant walks in and says it needs to be clean, we'll help him get clean or her get clean. All right? So the it might be the one that sponsors you. Got a long memory anyway, right? But I think about it. 
We're not here to judge one another, are we? And if we start judging and picking you out, they, 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 they're running around and they talk about our diversity and strength. I'm going to tell you I don't believe that. I'm going to tell you right out I don't believe our diversity is our strength. Our diversity is what kept me out there. Our similarities is what keeps me here. I care less. When you close your eyes in prayer and you feel the Spirit go around this room, you feel that Spirit, you're home. When you close your eyes and you're not looking at one another, I can't see if you're, if you're real thin. I can't see if you're fat. I can't see if you're a woman or a man. I can't see what sexuality you are. I don't know if you're religious or non-religious. I don't know if you're an atheist or agnostic, do I? But when we reach our arms around the table and we feel the spirit and we take that time for over a minute silent prayer to reflect on how we carry the message that no addict need die tonight without hearing the message of hope and promise of freedom and to reflect on how we carry it to them. We don't see anybody. We just feel the spirit. That's what I want to become. It's I want to be sitting here talking with you and not see you. I only want to see spirits looking back at me. I don't need to know all the other stuff. That's what keeps me here. Not our diversity. I care less about that. I care about our similarities, how we help one another, how we find this program, Narcotics Anonymous, and it becomes your lifeline and you can feel you're part of something greater. When someone sat over and talked to me about some issues they're going through, I look it back and I want to know that decision was made by knowing their self first. I could care less what the decision they make, but I do care about that they know their self and they're led through the steps. I could care less of the decision. I'm going to hug them and love them and care for them regardless of that decision they make. I am not going to pass judgment on them. I know what it is to be alone and isolated and not being able to talk about issues, okay? All right, I know what it is to not talk about the issues when a 15-year-old girl saved my life. Why do I say that? I used to drive this 15-year-old girl home. I used to drive her home every night knowing she's walking into her house and being raped by her father and her uncle every night and having her go in there, but respect her that she didn't want me to call the cops. She just wanted to graduate high school and be able to move. That's all she wanted. You know, that girl has 35 years clean. Every time I come up my clean date, she calls me and thanks me. Thanks me, first of all, for helping her get clean. Second of all, thanking me for allowing her to make her decision. She raised three beautiful children in this fellowship. She's worked through her issues, but she helped me work through mine. She helped me deal with the feeling like built for years of being raped in my own bed by my mother. She helped me to be able to deal with that homosexual molesting me at 12 years old, the other homosexual at 13 raping me as he picked me up hitchhiking, and me feeling so bad I burned his house down that night, feeling like built. I don't know if he's alive or not, but it doesn't matter. What matters, I felt like built and could not deal with the time walk through these doors. And a little 15-year-old girl helped me be honest and helped me to share about them issues that I carried them deep in secrets, whatever they are. And I don't know. They may not be as intense, but there are some that are limited today. All right? Then deep in secrets are what takes us back out there. We need to get it on the table. If you can't do it in the rooms, I did it all in the rooms in Narcotics Anonymous. 
People say, what about your amnesty? Who cares about it? I need it out of me now. Find a sponsor to help you be honest and get, get through it and work through it. No one else has to know in these rooms. But you know you can't hold it, so get together with a sponsor. Find a sponsor that fits you, that you can be honest and talk about these. Help them guide you through the steps. I couldn't carry this anymore. That girl set me free in Narcotics Anonymous, a 15-year-old girl that I used to have to drive home. When I can look at you as that spirit, I'm set free. I have been set free in Narcotics Anonymous. I am wholly free, as Jimmy Kennan talked about. Wholly free. I'm not controlled what people think about me today. I could care less. And I'm not talking about I don't care in that sense, but I'm not controlled by it any longer. I take inventory when you say something to me about it. If it's mine, I hold it and change it. If it's not me, I let it go. It's not my problem, is it? I can get in front of crowds of 15,000, 20,000 people and I can talk at the drop of a dime. I couldn't, do, I couldn't talk, read, or write. I don't stutter anymore. They spent seven years trying to change the way I talk. If I say a word wrong and you look at me and tell me about it, I say, well, that's your problem, not mine. I can't change that. No, I'm not going to change it. My tongue's too big for my mouth. It causes a problem for me talking. I can't say certain words. I order biscotti. People are like, well, that's not what it is. Well, it is to me. It's biscotti. How's that? You got a problem? You're not, I'm not going to change the way I talk. I can't do it. I, I did seven years in speech class for this. And I go, I couldn't control my tongue when I was little. It was too large for my mouth. And it's still too large. It didn't shrink. So what can I do about it? You know, I, I, you ever see Gene Sim, any of you ever watch kids play? You see that guy that, when he sticks his tongue out and he got blood dripping, you know why he's dripping? Because he cut the rack of his tongue to make it long. I don't got to do that. You know, I don't have to do that. Mine's as long as his. And it's normal. But the problem is, I couldn't speak when I was little. And then I stuttered. Once I got stuttering, I was done. Then I'd hide. Crawl in the corner somewhere and won't want to talk. Five years old, my first feeling of embarrassment. You know what happened? My grandfather used to drop me off in a taxi cab, and then he had to walk three blocks up to the school, and this little, this little blonde-haired girl, who was a great ahead of me, come down, and she walked me up to the hill. And I felt embarrassed. I felt alone. I felt isolated already. I thought people were laughing at me. And my sisters always trying to set me up with their girlfriends, and I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be scared. I didn't want to be around them. And they'd laugh at me. Oh, Billy's cute, Billy's. If you look at Gabriel, you'll see what I looked like when I was little. And he's a cute little kid. He's a handsome little kid. He's outgoing. I wasn't outgoing. I didn't have the smiles of that little boy. My mouth looked sad all the time. And then my dad used to make me wear a pompadour. Anyone ever know what a pompadour is? If you look at any of the 50 movies, you see them guys with their hair slicked back and they got that little flip up top? That was me as a kid. Then he put me in a little suit. I remember that. Every, every Easter, every Christmas, I had to wear a suit and I had to wear a hat and a little tie. I still remember that. And I looked sad. I always looked sad as a kid. I wasn't a happy kid. 
I was embarrassed. And then in regular school, you know what I got? I got three pair of, uh, used to have this store, W.T. Grant store that used to be in America. Well, high class people didn't go buy clothes there. All the poor people got clothes there and I get a pair of brown jeans, I get a pair of uh, navy blue jeans and I get, and I forget what the other color was, but they weren't blue jeans. They were just looking like they were the same material. And then they get me bobo zero uh, sneakers, we call them. I get a pair of bobo sneakers, I get three pair of socks, three pair of underwear, three t-shirts. That was my clothes for the year. I didn't get no new clothes the next September. Went back to school. And I felt embarrassed. You go to school, everyone else is dressed up except me. I'm stuck in this W.T. Grant store clothes. I didn't feel part of it. See, I didn't know how to deal with that stuff. I could care less what I wear today. I'm not here for a show. I'm in a pair of shorts. I got a long jeans shirt underneath and I got my N.H. Pure shirt on. Okay, I don't care what I look like. I got a, a wrestling cap on. I'm, I'm proud of this one. I was a brown certified coach and in, involved in, in the Olympic stuff. See, that's the Olympic stuff on the back of it, okay? Olympic rings. I helped train athletes become the best at what I could do. The best that I could do was create over 100 some state champions, create uh, national caliber athletes in college, get some medals, get on the podium, all right? Get free rides to colleges and some kids on the Olympic circle. I did the best that I could do. I'm here to do the best that I can do at recovery today. You are my miracle, and I'm happy to be part of your lives. I'm happy I can find recovery with you, and we're on a journey together. I will be back here next year at the, at the European Fellowship Service Conference. Hopefully, I'm going to see some of you in June at the Fellowship Service Conference in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. And hopefully, we can go on a, on a food run. Hopefully we can eat in New York, up in the Bronx, in South Philly at Tony Luke's, and then this diner, and then we found a new place, good and plenty. Eric thought I was talking German to him. Good and plenty, so I showed him today. It's a, can it's a Hershey candy, it's, it's pink and white, but then there's a restaurant I found down in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania Dutch land. And we're gonna go there and eat, and they got, it's a family atmosphere. When you walk in, it, it's, you can tell them, we're looking at it today. It tells you, he introduces his new people to everyone in the restaurant. He makes it into a family act. I'm thinking, that's like N.A. And then they eat. All right, and they put these extra large portions on your plate, so be prepared to eat if you're coming over. But we're going to have a fun, and then at the conference, we're going to eat. We have a beautiful Italian dinner, a real Italian dinner, a Sicilian dinner, on Saturday night there. We eat stuffed shells, stuffed manicottis. We make a meatballs, we'll put out some fish, we'll have some, well, we do a, a, something different. We don't have the Italian desserts, we have the Pennsylvania Dutch pies. I like to get some blueberry custard and raspberry custard. There's no sugar in it, so if you're a diabetic, you can eat it. All right? And they're delicious. Then I get this thing they call Lebanon bologna. If you never had it, you gotta come. Just for the bologna. All right? It's a smoke that's about this long, it's about this round, and we cut it up. And then we get the farmer's cheese, a different type than over here. We eat the farmer's cheese, and we eat cheese, and we eat bologna all night. And maybe we'll eat a couple extra pies and eat some shoe fly pies. All right? And we'll have the campfire meetings like you had here. We'll have the campfire meetings, and we'll study the gray book. And I'll sit up for a weekend there. 
I'm available for anyone that wants to talk in the middle of the night. I want to thank you for allowing me to come here and participate in your life. It's been a joyous occasion and you helped my recovery immensely. Thank you for being my friends.